If you'll turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, that will be our destination for this week. And as you're getting there, I'd like for you to remember that last week, Jesus' disciples had returned to Jerusalem after Jesus had ascended into heaven. And they returned to Jerusalem at Jesus' instruction. He told them, he said, go to Jerusalem and wait together until I send you the promise of the Father. And you'll remember that the promise of the Father was the, the Holy Spirit. The Father, remember, had promised to send power from on high. Now, if someone were to come along the street and promise to a group of people that he was going to give you power, uh, many people would assume that that power had something to do with them having prominence. And so people would line up at your house and they would be there. They would be waiting. But God's not offering the kind of power that this, this, this world offers or this world would even desire. This power is different. This power is the power that men and women of this world do desire. But the power that Jesus is offering is the power that was promised It was the Holy Spirit who would be the one who would, and will still today, empower those who are filled with Him. And the Holy Spirit convicts the world, meaning non-believers, of sin, of righteousness, and of coming judgment. But then He also empowers believers to be witnesses, and that's what He's coming for. And on this day that they've been told to go and wait He empowers believers to be witnesses to the fact that Jesus is both Lord and He is the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the one that God was going to send in order to redeem His creation, people, back to Himself. But He was going to send this Messiah through the nation of Israel. Remember God's promise to the nation of Israel through Abraham. He he told Abraham, He said, In you, in the nation that comes from you, All other nations will be blessed. And so the Christ, the Messiah, would come and he would be the only way of salvation. And the Holy Spirit would testify to this fact. He's the only one that can save anyone from the guilt of their sins against God. So these men, desiring to be obedient to the Lord, who they have just recently seen, touched, spoken with, and witnessed, Not only his resurrected body after seeing him be crucified did they witness, but they also now have also witnessed him ascend into heaven while leaving them with the instruction or the command to go make disciples of all nations starting in Jerusalem, expanding into Judea and into Samaria, and then continuing into the ends of the earth. It's it's like when you throw a rock into a pond. That rock lands in the epicenter. But out from that splash, that one tiny splash in the middle of a gigantic pond, you have this ripple effect. And the waves kind of go out from the center of that one little shock. And they they eventually, they touch the whole pond. And so God, in the same way, is going to use Holy Spirit-empowered disciples of Jesus Christ to go out and share the good news not just in Jerusalem, which is where they are right now, but to the ends of the earth, just like that ripple splash. And so remember that Luke is set out, he said this in the beginning, to give an orderly account. 
he said in Luke, to give an orderly account of all that Jesus began to do and teach. And then in the beginning of Acts, he actually refers back to the book of Luke, and he says that. He says, in my former account, O Theophilus, I have taken an effort to give an orderly account of all that Jesus began to do and to teach. And so we see this continuance into the second book, in the book of Acts, Luke part two, you might call it, where Luke writes to us pertaining to the continuing work of Jesus Christ, now in a new way by the power of the Holy Spirit in believers. So we see this as a, an overall outline for the book of Acts. We see in chapters one through eight, Luke will write and show us the witness of the church there in Jerusalem. And then chapters 8 through 12 attest to, or they will chronicle the witness in Judea and Samaria. And then chapters 13 through 28 will kind of explain or express, they'll give an account of the witness of the church empowered by the Holy Spirit that testified of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. And so this splashing is, is just kind of rolling out. So with that overall theme in mind, let's start in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, where it says, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord. Remember we said last week that that was to mean of one mind, with one purpose. They, they were all of one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so we come up to this event that's referred to as the event called Pentecost. Now we get a different idea of what this word means because we have a denomination called Pentecostal. But let's go back to the biblical term and, and what it actually means because the root word Pentecost actually just means 50, the number 50. You and I might hear this term and we think of a denomination in a relationship to a, a specific church. Pentecostal has come to be known as a type of church known for being typically very charismatic, very lively in their worship. But the origin of the word Pentecost actually goes back to the feasts that were set up by God for the nation of Israel to keep as a testimony to God's dealing with them. Pentecost was the third of six feasts that they were given. And you can read more in depth about these feasts in, the, um, in Leviticus chapter 23. The first of those feasts was called Passover. This was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They celebrated this to remember God's deliverance of Israel out of the slavery they were in while in Egypt. And uh, they were to trust in the blood of the lamb. They were to take a lamb without blemish and slay that lamb. And they were to drain the blood. And when they drained that blood, then they were to prepare the meal to eat what they could of the lamb, what they needed to sustain themselves. And they were supposed to take the blood of that lamb. They were supposed to shed it over the doorposts of their homes. This they would do in faith. And all who trusted in this blood that was shed over the doorposts and the lentils of their homes was spread over the doorpost. All those who would trust in that blood 
would have their firstborn sons in the household spared. Now, this seems odd, except the, the idea was all the plagues that God had shown in Egypt were to testify that God was holy and he was to be obeyed. But Pharaoh kept hardening his heart. So on the last plague, kind of the final straw for God to show these people in Israel, or excuse me, in Egypt, and Pharaoh specifically, that he meant business, that his people were to be let go. So he told them, I'm going to do a plague where each of the firstborn sons of all your households will die. And so they were to shed this blood over the doorposts, the people of Israel, and anyone who would trust it by faith. And that blood would be assigned to the angel of death when he passed over, literally, to kill the firstborn, and then everyone who trusted in the blood would have their firstborn spared. So you can see in the same way that we trust in the blood of the lamb in order for us to have our lives spared because we are unholy. And the only way for us to approach God is by his perfect sacrifice and trusting in his blood to be the one that the, the part that would wash us of our sin and make us holy in the sight of God. And also part of this Feast of Unleavened Bread, they also cooked unleavened bread. Makes sense, right? Mainly because they had to flee Egypt quickly so they did not have time for the yeast that was in that bread to rise. But we know that leaven or yeast was really a picture in the Old Testament of sin and how it, when it enters into our lives, it affects the whole of who we are, just like yeast. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough, and then when the bread sits there and it rises, that causes the bread to be fluffy and full of air. But sin is the same way in our lives. We can't just compartmentalize it into one little section, but it affects everything about who we are and what we do. It affects the fruit that comes out of our life. And so in the same way, they had this, this bread that was unleavened. But this feast was fulfilled in Jesus because for our salvation, Jesus is our Passover lamb. We trust in his blood. And he's also the bread of life in whom there was no leaven or no sin. And we know that we are able to partake of him and receive salvation, not because we earn it, not because we're good enough ourselves, but because he's good enough. He's perfect. And also we get our sustenance because he's the bread of life. And he brings us not only out of this life, which we have heaven promised to us, but, but he also brings us through this life. He sustains us. So we become satisfied in him and we hunger for more righteousness as we walk with him. So the second of the two feasts is the feast called First Fruits. Now this was the feast that they celebrated at the beginning of the harvest season. And they gave the first growth of their crops to the Lord as an offering for his providing for them grain for their animals and food for their tables in the promised land that he brought them into. Now, when he brought them into the promised land, it was going to be a little bit different than, when, than what they were used to in Egypt. He told them, he said, in Egypt, you water your crops from the Nile River and you pump water and you're able to get it at all the times. But in the land of Canaan, there's not a river passing by it. You have the Jordan but what you're going to have to trust in, it's a very arid land, is for the Lord your God to provide your rain and your, your rain from the heavens. And so 
They were supposed to, as they entered into this land, not only were they to enter into it by faith, but they were also to trust the Lord while they were in it to sustain them, to give the land the water that it needed so that they could have their daily bread and the grain for their animals so they could have increase. Jesus fulfilled this feast by his resurrection from the dead because he himself is the first fruits from the dead. So he fulfilled the feast of first fruits by being the first fruits from the dead. We see that in his resurrection. But let's, before we just say that, we need to find some scripture that actually tells us that. We find it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In verse 20 there. It says, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep or died. Verse 21, For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, but even so in Christ all shall be made alive. I like that. But each one, verse 23, in his own order, Christ the first fruits, meaning the first of the resurrection, and afterward those who are Christ at his coming. So the resurrection is the hope, that's the promise, that when he returns, we will be gathered up before him. And so uh, then we see the feast, excuse me, the, yeah, the feast of Pentecost. And this is the one that was getting celebrated during this time in Jerusalem. So sometimes this feast is referred to as the feast of, excuse me, the feast of seven weeks which comes up to about 50 days. Think about it. Seven weeks times seven days. It's about 49 days, give or take, right? So around 50 days. They would celebrate, excuse me, in the Old Testament, this referred to 50 days after the first fruits. And so the first fruits would come, and then after 50 days, you have this time when they would um, uh, celebrate Pentecost, and it was a time of harvest, They would celebrate this and they would begin to harvest at this time. But even before that, we see this pattern of 50 days in the Old Testament because when the Israelites were delivered out of Egypt and into the land of slavery, it was 50 days later, after they were delivered, taken through the Red Sea, 50 days later that they arrived at a mount called Mount Sinai. You probably remember this if you've ever seen any Old Testament movies. You see uh, the Charlton Heston's Ten Commandments. But they get there to Mount Sinai, or in some areas of the Bible it's referred to as Mount Horeb, where God gave them the law, or the Ten Commandments. Now why is this important? Because when God gave them the Ten Commandments, this was a very new thing. Remember that Abraham walked daily with God, he obeyed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. He had to do it by faith, though. He didn't have the written word like you and I do. So when he gave them the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai through Moses, God was revealing himself to them in a way that they had not known him before. Similar to what we're reading about today, you see in the New Testament, we see that Jesus fulfilled Pentecost by, first of all, being the first fruits of the resurrection, but then 50 days by 50 days later, he sent his Holy Spirit after his resurrection and beginning the harvest of all those who would receive Jesus and begin 
excuse me, and be forgiven their sins. You might remember Jesus speaking of the harvest, and he did many times, very agrarian society. But in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 through 38, he refers to this harvest that was getting ready to take place. What did I say? Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 through 38. Where it says there, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered like sheep, having no shepherd. And then, when he noticed this, he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. He says, Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest, pray to the Lord, to send out laborers into his harvest. And so this harvest that was getting ready to take place is now getting really ready to take place, because no longer are they just to rely on Jesus to be the harvester, but now he's going to empower many harvesters and he starts this work at the beginning, right there in, in today's text in the Pentecost. So my point is, in the Old Testament, Pentecost celebrated the birth of a nation, the nation called Israel. And we see this in Exodus 19, verse 5 at Mount Sinai. But then in the New Testament, Pentecost celebrated the birth of the church. And this is the beginning of the church age where we see in Acts chapter 2, verse 41 through 47, when this really begins to take flight. So the Lord is once again revealing himself to a man in a way that they had not yet known by him before. Number one, by the sound that we read about from heaven in verse two, it says, as a mighty rushing wind that fulfilled the whole house where they were sitting. Excuse me, not fulfilled, but filled the house. Filled the whole house. And then number two, by the sight, it says that there, that were, there were tongues as of fire, divided tongues that rested upon each one of these individuals that were gathered there. And number three, the result of all that is they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now many assert that the sound from heaven was in order to draw the crowd. Remember at this time, this is during the Feast of Pentecost, and so many people would be gathered, and we'll read this in the next few verses, from many nations. And so being a strategic time for God to reach many nations, he would call in by this sound uh, a bunch of people all at once. It would draw a crowd that we will see in the next part of the chapter. But heaven, in my opinion, was opening wide for a short period of time here, and not only sending, but also revealing great power to those who were waiting for it. And they were waiting with expectancy. Notice that in order for this to take place, God gave them a peace to be involved in. He said, I want you to go to Jerusalem, and I want you to join together, and I want you to wait. Wait together. Now, that doesn't mean they were just sitting there twiddling their thumbs, but we find out that the 120 that were gathered in the upper room, what were they doing? They were praying. So the tongues that appeared like fire would remind those witnessing this event of the presence of God. Remember that the audience here is primarily Jewish. So they had all of them, each one of them, grown up from a young age, hearing the stories of Moses 
coming into contact with the Lord for the first time by the burning bush that had not been consumed. And then there's the account of Isaiah who had encountered a vision of the Lord in Isaiah 6 where he saw a vision of the Lord and an angel approached him with a burning hot coal from the altar of God and purged or cleansed Isaiah's lips from their uncleanness that he had just confessed. He said, Lord, I'm undone. He got a vision of the Lord and in the presence of just a vision of the Lord, he said, Lord, I'm undone. You are holy. I'm a unclean man amidst an unclean people. And so the Lord sent this angel, this holy angel, to take this coal from the altar that was burning hot and burn his lips in order to purify them. And so God's revealing himself to people over and over in Scripture through this idea of fire and purification and consummation, just being consumed in his presence. And so another time, here his presence is an all-consuming presence, but with him empowering us, we become just like the burning bush. We become the bush that's on fire. We have a testimony to God's presence in this world, but we're not completely consumed. It's an astonishing thing to the rest of the world who allow themselves to be controlled by their passions. We allow ourselves to be controlled by false gods, our hobbies, our jobs, and our desires that are not of the Lord. But those things, when allowed to control us, they completely consume us. They don't leave anything left. They never replenish us. They only take from our resources and our energy. But God, however, God fills us and he sends us out and we can always replenish and be filled back up by returning to him, returning to his presence because he whether people believe it or not, he is the source of life. He is the replenisher. He is the everlasting bunny, if you will, except he doesn't ever wear out. He's not like a battery. He doesn't need to recharge. He is self-sustaining. So, filled with the presence of God himself, they begin to be used by God, these men and women, to speak with other tongues. The word for tongues there is a debate that goes on and on. But there are those who interpret this to mean that these men were speaking in tongues like the gift of the Spirit that Paul teaches about in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. For more info on that, we can check that out later. You can go there on your own time. We won't get into that today. But in this case, the word in the Greek is actually uh, the word glossia or glossia which means, uh, by implication, a language, especially one naturally unacquired. In other words, it's a foreign language that they had never acquired by learning it formally or informally, a language that they did not know. I believe this to be true because of the word definition from the Greek that we just read, <clears throat> but also because of the response that we see in the next set of verses. So let's read chap, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 5 through 13. It says, And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused, because everyone heard them speak in his own language. 
Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own languages, excuse me, our own tongues, the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? But still others, mocking, said, well, they're just full of new wine. So first, let's take a quick look at a map. We just read quite the list of nations in verse 9 through 11. So on this map, you see um, basically every one of these nations that were listed, but in visual format. <laughs> it's kind of neat because we see the Mediterranean Sea, and then we see all these nations surrounding it. We see all the way over to kind of the area of Asia there and uh, Turkey. But we also see to the north uh, Greece and Crete, the island of Crete. But my main point is that right in the center of all these nations and all these arrows that are pointing to the center, you see the, um, the city of Jerusalem. And in that city is where this little uh, circumstance is taking place, this event. The beginning of the church is happening right there and then. But what you see is all those arrows pointing to Jerusalem. That's where all these people came to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. And so they're all there, they're enjoying themselves, and the Lord decides to show up in a new way, in a way that they've never experienced before, just like on Mount Sinai. And so we now, we know that the group gathered is from all over the place, but we see that their response to what is taking place during this event, as they each heard in their own language, the disciples who were all from one area in Israel Galilee, perhaps they had an accent, they could just tell, or maybe it was their clothing. But these men and women were all speaking according to verse 11. It doesn't say exactly who it was, it just says that those were gathered, had tongues of fire sitting on them, each one of them, and they all spoke as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so, what I want you to notice though is what they were speaking according to verse 11. They weren't speaking any kind of crazy message. What they were testifying to were the wonderful works of God. They were proclaiming all that God has done. But these slack-jawed Israel natives were speaking of the languages of all those we see on the map on the screen here. Quite a diverse group. They were speaking Egyptian. They were speaking Roman, apparently, or I guess Greek. They were speaking languages for each one of those nations listed. The diverse group that's there responds first, number one, with confusion, since they were kind of confounded at the fact that they could all understand the message. Each one was hearing it in their own language. So this was no doubt a miracle by God. And then they respond with amazement. They marvel at what's taking place. 
But after the shock and the awe wears off, they're perplexed. They're wondering, what, what could this event possibly mean for something so miraculous to happen? There has to be some sort of meaning for this. What's going on? What is this, they ask. And others, kind of mocking them, they just saw what was going on. And they, those that were speaking, they start mocking him, saying, these guys are just full of new wine. They're just drunk. Now, they made the assumption that those speaking were drunk. How often do we see this? I, I went to college, and so maybe I've had some experiences that other people haven't. Um, some of them were good. I learned a lot, but I also got into the party scene a little bit. I, thought, I think it's kind of interesting that uh, people that drink a lot seem to think that when they get drunk or when they drink, when they get inebriated, they think that they're more... Um, that they're better at things all of a sudden. They think they're 10 foot tall and bulletproof. I can fight better. I can play foosball better. You know, whatever their thing is, they feel like they possibly do it better. But if anything, when you're drunk, when you're inebriated, your skills decrease because of inebriation. But the funny thing is your perception, you perceiving what you're doing gets worse too. And so Maybe it is during that state that you perceive that you're doing great at things like foosball or whatever it is, but really you're worse than you've ever been. And you're probably drooling too. It's funny that how many people are willing to do karaoke when they've been drinking, but when, if they haven't been drinking, they won't. Kind of like dancing. But in your mind, you're 10 feet tall and bulletproof when that's going on. And that's the way that man perceives things. But these men are not drunk. They're filled with the Spirit of God, and He's pouring Himself through them. So in order to answer their question stated in verse 12, their question being, what could this mean? Peter answers them with certainty and with boldness. He says there in verse 14, but Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. And heed my words, or listen to my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. Now, some people I know that wouldn't matter whether it was the third hour of the day. But that's neither here nor there. But then verse 16, Peter says, But this is what was spoken, spoken by the prophet Joel. So he says there, answering their question, What is this? What could this mean? He answers by saying, this is what was spoken by Joel, the prophet. And then he starts to quote. I just want to reemphasize what he said there. Their question, what could this mean? His answer, this is. And he answers. He doesn't say, I think it means this or, or it probably means that. He says, according to what scripture teaches, this is that which Joel, the prophet, spoke of. And we see him quote from the scripture. So he gives a reasoning for what was going on. So let's read Acts chapter 2. We're still in chapter 2, verse 17 through 21. He said, It shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, 
blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before before this will all take place, he says, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So he basically explains and shares even the gospel that was given in the book of Joel there. But God had told them through the prophets that this day would come, the day when he would pour out his spirit on all flesh. And then he lists out the events that would take place after the Holy Spirit was poured out. But these events, kind of the crazy events in between whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved before the great and terrible day of the Lord, or the, excuse me, he doesn't say that there, the great... Um, the great and awesome day of the Lord. Um, But then he says between there and from the beginning, you know, after the Spirit is poured out, these things will take place. It will be during that time when this period that you and I live in, where we've been given grace, we are able to approach God based on Jesus' righteousness. We can be underneath that covenant that He's given us in the blood of Jesus Christ. But at the end of that time, when Jesus returns, is when it's all over. There's no longer an opportunity. And so, well, I guess there's that opportunity. But all those who call on the name of the Lord after his return, when I believe the uh, tribulation will happen, will all die because of their faith. They'll be martyred. But during this age that you and I live in, we have the opportunity to be witnesses and to be witnesses with the opportunity to share that good news before his return. But the most important part I see here is that he's giving a scriptural reference for what's taking place. He shows them sight. He shows them sound. Those are both subjective ideas. But when he goes to scripture, it's an objective lesson. It's something that God said would take place. It's something that he told ahead of time. But it's something in God's word which he says will never change. He says, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will remain forever. So it's something that we can bank on. It's something we can uh, put our trust in. It won't move. But he shares there at the end, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And this is the reason for the pouring out of the Holy Spirit the reason for the message being spread through the disciples, so that all the people gathered who could hear in their own language we see, not so that they could have a circus type of event where utter chaos is going on, but so that men and women would be saved by God's grace and receive the forgiveness of their sins against Him. God's showing mercy. He's giving them what they don't deserve. And be freed up. He frees us up through this action to have a relationship with Him, our Creator, who loves us, desires to carry them through this life with the truth as their guide to keep them from stumbling and falling in darkness. But as we wrap up today's study, I want you to consider something. The happenings that we just read about here in chapter 2 would not have occurred, and these men and women that waited upon it to happen 
would not have been able to be a part of it unless they had first, spending time with Jesus, hearing his voice personally, in their own time, as God spoke to him, to them, if they had not been obedient to the instruction that they heard from him, had they not listened to his voice and obeyed and joined together as a group to wait before their God in order that they could receive power from him in his timing so that they could become bold witnesses and testify to the things that they had shown that he had shown them, then this wouldn't have taken place. They hadn't waited. If they hadn't known Jesus personally, they wouldn't have known that this was going to take place. They wouldn't have been able to be ready for it. But they were. And because of it, as a result, many people, many men and women, heard the good news of Jesus Christ. And they were, we'll find out later, they were cut to the heart. They, they said, what do we do next? So God was glorified through this event it started as simple as them knowing Jesus' commands, setting aside their plans, and following His plan instead. And as a result, God was glorified and many were saved. They believed and they became witnesses themselves. And we'll get to see this more. If, we, if you and I would just be this set apart, be that willing to turn around, to go away from our plans, and to be willing to go where God sends us, the reality is, it may not be to a foreign country. It may just be to go to town and country instead of save a lot. God sometimes desires to switch up our plans a little bit because He's wanting to send one of His mouthpieces, one of His servants, to go and speak to somebody. Maybe a cash register person. Maybe somebody at their job. Maybe somebody on, you know, who knows? God's plans are higher than ours. But it started with their simple obedience to what He had told them to do. And we'll get to see the end result of that next week. And you'll see that a direct result of this is that the church will spread like wildfire as these folks that were present on that Pentecost will go back to their homes that we see on the map, see, we saw on the map earlier. And when they speak about what they've witnessed to all those in their hometowns, excuse me, when they speak about what they have witnessed to all those in their hometowns, all those in their homes, all those and their family members that didn't get to go, God will be glorified and men will have the opportunity to call on the name of the Lord and be saved. In Cappadocia, in Phrygia, in Pamphylia, in Mesopotamia, in Egypt, in Rome. And we'll see this later because Paul will go to Rome and when he's there, he will experience and meet up with other Christians that are there. They'll have already heard the gospel and then he'll come along and he'll encourage those that are walking with the Lord. And he'll build up the believers that have already started a church there. That's his heart's desire. So I wanted to end with a quote from a guy by the name of D.T. Niles. You probably haven't heard of him. But he said something I absolutely love. Because oftentimes we kind of forget where we came from. But he says this. He says, Christianity is one beggar telling another beggar where he has found bread. Now, do you consider yourself a beggar for the Lord? Somebody that was hungry, someone that was in need of sustenance, someone that was in need of salvation, uh, someone that was full of sin, destitute, not able to take care of themselves. And do you realize that as a beggar for the Lord, you, you didn't have anything and you came to him and you responded. You said, Lord, give me the bread of life. Give me, pour, 
your, your Holy Spirit into me. Make me useful so that I could in turn respond and, and give someone else daily bread. Point them to the source. Because we're all beggars for the Lord and we found bread. And, and so these men and women that are going to receive the bread of life by this testimony they've seen, they're going to go back home and they're going to shit. They're going to give up bread. They're going to point people to the source of where they found bread. And so tonight we're going to, excuse me, today, this morning, we're going to take communion and remember that we've been first partakers of the bread of life. We've received freely and now we're called to go and freely give. But we have to remember that we're only in the spot we're at today because we've first received, because God's good, because he knew we, what we needed before we even did. And so let's pray.